Welcome to Kids Considered, where two pediatricians discuss children's health topics of interest to parents in a podcast with new subjects considered every episode. I'm Dr. Lena Vanderlist. And I'm Dr. Dean Blumberg. And we're both pediatricians at UC Davis Children's Hospital in Sacramento, California. I bet a lot of people have heard that trampolines are like the things that keep orthopedic surgeons in business, right? (laughs) Right, right. So to state the obvious, because trampoline injuries are commonly broken bones and then they see the orthopedist. Well, I feel like ear infections are sort of the thing that keep general pediatricians like me in business because I, I feel like I see usually at least one a day, especially during like cold and flu season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, ear infections are bread and butter for general pediatrics. And they're really the most common bacterial illness in children. And they're the cause of like misery for parents and kids alike, right? They cause fever. They cause so much missed school and work for parents. So today we're really pleased to be joined by Dr. Jamie Funamura, a pediatric ear, nose, and throat surgeon here at UC Davis, who we send patients to who have frequent ear infections. Yes, thank you so much for joining us today. And you may hear of a pediatric ENT also being referred to as an otolaryngologist. That's one of those big (laughs) medical terms. Um, Dr. Jamie, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it is a uh, terrible uh, name for our specialty. Um, So (laughs) ENT for short is great. Um, And I do always love talking about ears. Sometimes we start um, with a little mini medical school and anatomy lesson for our listeners. So I think it'd be useful today to walk our listeners through the normal anatomy of the ear from the outer ear to the inner ear, because, you know, that was a real learning experience for me when I went to medical school to learn about all the different parts of the ear. Absolutely. The outer ear is everything that is in contact with the outside world. So it is the part that you can see plus the ear canal. Um, the middle ear is the air-filled space behind the eardrum that also contains our hearing bones. And those are the three smallest bones of the body, the malleus, the incus, and the stapes. You can see parts of the middle ear, but only by looking through the eardrum, which is not always that easy to see. And so often we are guessing a little bit about what is going on inside. The inner ear itself contains the hearing and balance organs, and that is kept separate from the middle ear. It's so interesting, and I think it's something to point out, because a lot of parents, when they see me for an ear infection, will say things like, oh, did this come because like we got water in her ear when she was in the bathtub? And it always takes me to be like, oh, I have to like go through and explain the anatomy for parents because it's not that simple, right? So water in the ear and we'll talk about this a little later, could not cause a middle ear infection, correct? Exactly, unless there is a connection that's been created, say, by a procedure. So now that we've reviewed the anatomy of the ear, let's talk about what an ear infection is. And we in the medical community refer to it as acute otitis media. Acute meaning that it's just occurring over a short period of time. And otitis media is a middle ear infection. So what is it? As you said, it's what we typically refer to as an ear infection in that we have some inflammation or infection that has occurred of that middle ear space behind the eardrum. And so the media part of the name refers specifically to that middle ear space. 
how is this different from like fluid behind the ear or an ear effusion? So an effusion is refers to fluid that's trapped in that middle ear space. But if we say effusion by itself, we typically mean without the inflammatory or infectious component. And it's also a really common finding after an ear infection has passed. So it can occur on its own or more often in acute otitis media resolves, leaving behind some fluid, and then that will generally clear on its own with time. And what is that fluid? Is it like snot? Like what, what's that fluid in there? Do we know? Oftentimes, if we test it, we can grow bacteria from that fluid after an infection. It seems to be there's this negative pressure that builds up inside the middle ear space, and it actually pulls fluid from the surrounding area. So it's not specifically fluid that's been pulled in from the nose or coming from the outside world, but it seems to be the pressure, that vacuum that's created that pulls the fluid in. And then like when we talked about the anatomy, what makes this more confusing is that there can actually be an external ear infection that's different, like a a swimmer's ear, right? Exactly. So the medical term is then otitis externa, so referring to the outer ear specifically. And that tends to be from moisture that gets trapped in the ear canal. So it's that outer part of the ear That fluid from, say, swimming gets trapped in the little spaces and because it is dark and moist can lead to an infection itself. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? That's why we see this like that more commonly in the summer, at least I feel like, and and ear infections, the middle ear infection more commonly in the winter or the cold months. Not always. Exactly. And it can be tricky to distinguish between the two, because if you just have drainage, we don't know if it started in the middle ear or if it started in the outer ear. And so sometimes it takes some guesswork to figure out where it originated from. And the otitis externa tends to occur more in older children because they're swimming, right? Whereas the younger kids often don't dunk their heads when they get in the kiddie pool. Exactly. So why are kids more likely to develop a middle ear infection compared to older children and adults? There's a number of different reasons, and some of it you can probably speak better to than I can. But in part, our bodies are developing their immune responses over time. And then also because of our anatomy, there is a release valve to the middle ear that helps equalize that pressure that can build up before an ear infection. And that release valve, the eustachian tube, starts off small, and then it starts to grow in size and also strength, as well as descending to a more favorable angle where gravity can help that drainage as we get older. So middle ear infections are most common in infants and toddlers with their small and less well-developed eustachian tubes, as well as their less well-developed immune system. That's a great point. And we definitely see it way less commonly as they grow up. So, I mean, I'm sure it does play a huge role. And Dr. Dean, isn't the pneumococcal vaccine, like one of the vaccines that we routinely give to kids starting at two months, have some protective effect against ear infections? Yeah, the new generation of pneumococcal vaccines, I mean, new, meaning the conjugate vaccines, which came out more than 20 years ago. So I guess they're not that new. (laughs) New to you, around pretty much my whole life. Yeah, but those vaccines, um, you know, they were developed for invasive pneumococcal bacterial infections like 
like bloodstream infections, blood poisoning, or meningitis, but they also decrease ear infections by more than 30% because that one bacteria, pneumococcus, it's responsible for the majority of bacterial infections causing um, otitis media. Just another one of the thousands of reasons to get your child vaccinated on the appropriate schedule. So is there anything we can do besides making sure that your child's up to date on their immunizations to reduce a risk of ear infections in kids? Well, we certainly saw that measures to reduce the risk of the spread of COVID-19 also reduced early childhood ear infections. It was very dramatic. All the kids I was monitoring for possible intervention, their ear infections virtually disappeared during the early pandemic times. Um, and are really have only come back to normal or maybe even higher than normal levels this past winter. So likely good hand hygiene, not sharing utensils and cups, staying home when sick can help reduce the risk of infection and spread of ear infections. We've known for a long time daycare enrollment can be one of those increased risk factors for middle ear infections. Yeah, and just to be clear, it's really not the ear infection being transmitted from person to person. It's getting an upper respiratory tract infection with a virus that kind of mucks things up that then increases the risk of the ear infection. What are the hallmark signs of an ear infection that parents can look out for? So fever and ear pain are the most common symptoms. When the pressure builds up in the middle ear, it can be very painful. And in more extreme cases, it can lead to a rupture of the eardrum and drainage of pus that can actually be seen in the ear canal. But typically in our younger kids, it's those first two, the fever and ear pain. Um, older children may be able to explain that they're having trouble hearing. Um, and also, for particularly observant parents, they may notice that speech is sounds a little different, like our articulation is not as clear as it typically is. And balance can be affected in toddlers as well. In previous episodes, we've talked about how important it is to use antibiotics appropriately, also known as antibiotic stewardship, making sure that children who need antibiotics get them. But for children who don't need them, then they really shouldn't get antibiotics because that can have adverse consequences. So do all ear infections require treatment with antibiotics? Which cases would be reasonable to maybe say, oh, you've got an ear infection, but let's wait to start treatment with antibiotics? So ear infections can definitely be viral or bacterial. Um, and so there's a good number of them that will resolve on their own without antibiotics. I typically will only prescribe antibiotics if there is a very red, angry eardrum, and I can see that there's pus in the middle ear space, um, and there's the fever and ear pain associated with it. I probably don't see, actually, as many acute otitis media as our pediatricians do, so I will defer a little bit to Lena on this. I agree with your approach. I will typically only prescribe antibiotics when it is red and bulging out at me. It kind of looks like a donut. And I will do a lot of like watching and waiting for the other ones. And I wonder what you think about there are these new like cameras that they sell on Amazon that a lot of parents of kids I take care of will ask me about where they like basically stick a little camera in the ear and can take a picture. And 
I feel like it has taken me so long to learn how to look in an ear properly <laughs> that I've always like tell parents, oh, I don't know. I don't think you should get one. Maybe unless you're in the medical field or you have some experience with that. But they're usually just sending me like a picture of the canal and they're like, does this look infected? And I'm like, I can't even see the eardrum. But they may have some utility also in like keeping people out of the doctor's office. I don't know. What are your thoughts on those? It's interesting you say that. I, I do see a lot of home photos of uh, ear canals and eardrums these days. Some of the cameras are very good, and I've been able to diagnose an acute otitis media based on a photo. But it does take a little bit of practice, and certainly um, not all of the photos are particularly useful for diagnosis. And I would say that, like, we want to be really careful in the ear canal, like why we tell parents not to like clean the wax out of the kid's ears with a Q-tip is sometimes you can like just push it in further or there's always risk of perforation or or damage to the eardrum if you like go in too far with your camera, right? Or Or something when you're trying to get wax out of the way. So it might be an okay thing to try, but don't try too hard, maybe. <laughs> and younger kids, you know, as... As with most things, you know, our ear canals grow as we get older and bigger. And so an eardrum in a young child is actually much closer to um, the outside than for an adult or older child. And so it, it does warrant some extra care. And so in those cases where we decide that we do want to do antibiotics, we have a red bulging eardrum, or maybe there's pus behind it. What antibiotics are typically used, and is there a reason that we might choose one antibiotic over another? Yeah, so amoxicillin is, is our typical first-line medication. Um, if it's been used multiple times for treatment and seems to have a decreased treatment response, then often we move to its stronger cousin, Augmentin. There are others, such as Ceftonir, that are usually um, commonly prescribed this does get tricky because many of our kids, we will find out that they have a penicillin or moxicillin allergy in the course of treatment. Um, and so then we have to be a little more creative with our prescriptions. And you can check out our episode on penicillin allergy that we did with one of our allergists and discover that probably 90% of your kid who is diagnosed with a penicillin allergy doesn't have a true one. So you can come see me and maybe we can get you taking amoxicillin again. But um, it is tricky. We run into that a lot when kids get a rash after they have been on amoxicillin. And then we're like, what do we use? Because it really is the best drug for ear infections. So what about some children who just get ear infection after ear infection? They're just always getting another infection. What are the complications of recurrent ear infections? Typically, there are not long-term complications from a recurrent ear infection as long as the fluid is clearing in between episodes. Um, but we do find that children who are delayed in walking or speaking may find that having the recurrent ear infections are challenging for progressing with our development. Um, so our ears structurally are very robust and capable of recovering spontaneously between the ear infections, but it is it does warrant um, continual follow-up with each infection. Thankfully, most routine ear infections will never make it to see Dr. Funamura um, in her office. Like she said, that we see a lot and kids will just get over them and, you know, maybe they'll get another one the next cold season, but they're not having them recurrent. But let's say that 
you have a kid that has an ear infection and then it just comes, you you treat it with antibiotics and then they come back to see you two weeks later and it looks like it's back again and you try a different antibiotic. What's the best reason to refer a child to see a pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctor? The standard recommendation is if there have been three ear infections within six months or four within a year, one being within the last six months, that an ENT evaluation can be very helpful. Also, if that fluid behind the eardrum, the middle ear effusion, uh, remains for more than three months after an infection, it's also a good idea at that point to see an ENT. There um, are implications of that for hearing. And so with either the recurrent ear infections or the what we call chronic otitis media or middle ear effusion, we will typically see kids for those indications. Um, and as we were talking about before, the frequency of these ear infections is typically in toddlers. And so one to three-year-olds is are the age that I see the most in general, but particularly for ear infections. Okay, a couple questions about other possible referrals that come up in my day-to-day. If a kid has a perforation associated with the ear infection, this is one thing that always freaks parents out, I feel like. They're like, oh my gosh, their eardrum perforated? And I'm always like, oh yeah, but most of them will heal on their own and we don't need to do anything special. But when would you like to see a kid if that perforation has not yet healed? A perforation that occurs from an ear infection almost always um, heals spontaneously. And so something like 90% of those perforations, particularly in younger children, will heal completely on their own, which is nice to see. If it doesn't heal, again, within about three months, that's typically a good point to see an ENT and come up with a plan. Perfect. And then I know we're going to be talking about the procedure that can be used to treat um, when a kid gets ear tubes placed. And um, we'll probably walk through when they fall out and and that's normal. Um, Let's say a kid has an ear tube that was placed maybe three years ago and it's still just hanging out in the eardrum. What would you say about that? Is there any, is it necessary to get it out or can they keep it for a while? (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good question because our specialty is still trying to figure that out. Many will say that if a tube has been in place for at least three years, the likelihood of a continued perforation is very high. And so it is three years exactly is kind of the general recommendation right now for reevaluating and discussing do we go in and remove that tube or do we continue to monitor? And the, the choice will be different for different families. So I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's let's back <laughs> up and talk about this procedure, this um, procedure where you put these small tubes in the eardrum. These are called tympanostomy tubes or myringotomy tubes. Can you talk about you know what are the indications for inserting those tubes? Tympanostomy or myringotomy or just plain ear tubes are typically indicated for those same reasons we were discussing. Uh, you might place a referral to an ENT. Um, So the main purpose of that visit is to talk about how we feel about moving forward with ear tube placement. I will say that it's often a long discussion that we have because the options are we can continue doing what we're doing and treating each individual ear infection um, with either monitoring or antibiotics, depending on the presentation, or 
we can do this procedure where we place a small tube within the eardrum in order to substitute, essentially, for the eustachian tube. So the eustachian tube in a young child may not be opening and closing effectively to release that buildup of middle ear pressure. So the tube itself is that release valve. It prevents the buildup of pressure within the middle ear space. And so what is involved in that procedure? Like, let's say a, a parent signs up for it and they're scheduled for surgery and they, they arrive the morning of. What, what is the procedure that you do and how long can they expect it to take? The placement of an ear tube itself is actually very quick. And just by illustration, you know, in an adult population, we actually do it in clinic. We use a microscope to look through the ear canal. We numb up the eardrum a little bit and make a small slit and then place a tube in there to help keep that slit open. Um, so it, the procedure itself only takes a matter of minutes. Um, but in children, obviously, the ability to stay still for a procedure and managing the discomfort are the most important for, for success. Um, so we, uh, in children, do ear tube placement under general anesthesia and in an operating room. It is a little more involved than, say, dental procedures where you might have some sort of sedating medication or um, gas, but it's similar um, we have an anesthesiologist who holds a mask, the child falls off to sleep, sometimes we place an IV, and then we go ahead and proceed with the ear tube placement. Probably total time in an operating room is somewhere between 15 to 20 minutes, and it can be the whole process from check-in to check-out is probably about an hour, an hour and a half. Wow, that's pretty quick for any procedure. So after the kid gets the ear tubes put in, what should parents look out for afterwards? Any kind of complications? So day of recovery is really quite quick. Most parents will tell me that their child is back to normal um, by the time they get home and they rarely need any sort of pain medication. Uh, for kids who have had long-term fluid that's been affecting their hearing, um, this can be immediately improved, which is really great. I've actually had um, parents tell me that one of the biggest problems after a procedure is that loud household sounds like a vacuum cleaner can be very disturbing to their children because suddenly they're hearing it at full volume. There's really much post-procedure discomfort, and then there can occasionally be some drainage from the ears. And that typically is more often if we've had a recent ear infection at the time of the tube placement. And then along with this, kind of changes, the procedure itself can change, usually for the better, um, the presentation of an acute otitis media. So instead of the fever and ear pain, which were due to the pressure behind the eardrum, those symptoms tend to disappear. And with an ear infection, which you can still get after ear, ear tube placement, uh, a smelly drainage through the tube and into the ear canal can usually occur. And so I, I tell parents, you know, it, we change an ear infection from something that causes fever and pain to something that's kind of stinky and a little bit messy. Um, but most, most will take that trade off. And then one of the, I think, most important things about ear tube placement is it gives us a different delivery system for antibiotics. So oftentimes we're able to effectively treat an acute otitis media in the setting of ear tubes uh, with antibiotic eardrops rather than needing uh, oral antibiotics. 
Yeah, that's much easier and, you know, much easier on the on the body, on the GI tract, less di- associated diarrhea. And so most families love to be able to do the the ear drops if if they have a recurrent infection. So when a child has tubes placed and we kind of talked about this that they shouldn't last longer necessarily than 3 years in place, but how long is it typical that they do stay in place? And a lot of families will ask me like, can we go swimming? Can we do our normal childhood activities with ear tubes? What is the sort of spiel that you give after you place them? Ear tubes tend to last one to two years before falling out on their own. The idea is that the eardrum is trying to heal itself and then just pushes the tube out. If parents have had ear tubes themselves as a child, they may have memories of being told that they can't swim or they need earplugs. But this is actually one of our more recent changes, and it's similarly recent as in the last 10 to 20 years. A task force... uh, of our national organization got together and concluded that there was no increased risk of ear infections with water exposure for kids with ear tubes, but specifically for chlorinated pool water and home bath or shower water, not as necessarily true for um, lake or river water. So typically there's no specific restrictions um, to childhood activities. And even one of the, the bonuses of the procedure is that because the ear tubes prevent the buildup of that middle ear pressure, children with ear tubes actually do better with altitude changes. So when flying on an airplane or driving up to the mountains, they actually are doing the best in the family. (laughs) Yes, I believe that and I see why. And I am so thankful that there are people that do do this procedure because I have so many families in my practice that like it really does change their life. Um, If they are one of those parents of the kid that gets back to back to back ear infections. And um, of course, you know, like with any surgery, we have to use it judiciously and and select the right candidates. But, oh, my gosh, it it is one of those things that can really make a huge difference in families. So I thank you for being able to do that for them. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Funamora, for joining us today to discuss this very common infection. So, Dr. Lena, let's summarize today's topic. Acute otitis media, also known as ear infections, is the most common bacterial illness in children. Mm -hmm. This is an infection of the middle ear behind the eardrum, and this consists of inflamed fluid. And not all ear infections require treatment because many of them are caused by viruses, which we know that antibiotics do not help. But if it is red, if it's bulging, if your child has a fever, it may require antibiotics. And usually we start with the routine amoxicillin. Children are more prone to ear infections because of their immature immune systems and also because the eustachian tubes that drain the middle ears, they're less efficient in young children. And for kids that have frequent ear infections, specifically three or more episodes in six months or four or more within a year, we may refer to a pediatric ear, nose, and throat physician to talk about placing small tubes in the ear to help minimize the symptoms or I guess get the drainage out of the ear um, when you have the infection. Yeah, these ear tubes generally stay in place for a year or two and then fall out on their own. And at that point, the children have usually grown out of the period when they will have frequent ear infections. And that 
wraps up today's topic. We want to thank Dr. Jamie Funamura, a pediatric ear, nose, and throat doctor here at UC Davis Children's Hospital for joining us for today's episode. But Dr. Dean and I take full responsibility for any errors or misinformation. I'm curious if either of you guys were like ear infection kids. Oh man, I had ear infections (laughs) all the time, all the time. And it was back when there was less appreciation about antibiotic resistance. But after a while, it was like, there aren't any antibiotics left to treat your kid. And I remember going to Europe. I was fortunate enough to go to Europe, a trip to Europe when I was seven years old and flying to New York. And then for the next leg to Europe. And when we got to New York, I was just in pain. I don't know if it was the altitude changes, but my father said, you've got an ear infection and took me to the doctor at the airport. And the doctor was like, I don't know if you should fly. And it was this whole thing. And we flew. It was fine. It was a great trip, a great experience. <laughs> but I was one of those kids. And I don't think they had invented tympanostomy tubes then or else I would have gotten them. When when <laughs> were they invented? When did they come in, into play? Oh, shoot. I don't know. I, I <laughs> Let's see if we can look find that it. Up. Uh, um, it is it is now the most common procedure, most common elective procedure performed in children in the U.S. Um, and that has definitely been something that has changed over the decades. Is there a reason? So parents will ask me this sometimes. It just happened to me on Friday, actually, where the kid had an ear infection. It didn't look like it was about to perforate or anything like that. And they had a they were flying out to a wedding that day. And they said, do you think we should cancel the trip because of the pressure? And I said, no, I think you can still go. But I'm curious if that was the right response. I typically I try not to make any changes to families plans, but I give them some supportive measures that they can use, you know, giving the child ibuprofen um, or Tylenol about a half hour before the flight making sure that we have something on hand to, especially for young kids, to drink. Because every time we swallow, it forces our eustachian tube to open and close. And so it, typically with a cold, that um, that mechanism is, in, is slightly impaired. And so that can be the case with an ear infection. Um, but it'll at least force some of the pressure to release, potentially. We also will sometimes... We use like a nasal decongestant or something for similar reasons. That's very helpful. Thank you for that. Okay, I got the history of tympanostomy tubes thanks to chat GPT. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> You're using chat. I mean, that's a yeah. great resource well, for Well, so they began to say? gain popularity in the 50s and 60s, but it was during the 80s and 90s that it became more widespread and commonly performed. So this was in the 60s. So Yeah, you would have been like a guinea pig. Potentially. Yeah, they were too cutting edge back then. <laughs> Speaking of cutting edge, things that are coming down the pipeline, there are very few, but there are a couple of places across the country where they are performing ear tube placement for, for young children in clinic. And so um, using a uh, topical numbing medication, so a numbing medication in the ear canal and a delivery device to place the tube. Um, The advantage being we get to avoid the general anesthesia. Uh, I'm not ready to do that in clinic yet. Um, (laughs) And I don't know anyone in this area who is doing it yet, but, but perhaps in a few years. Sometimes I'm worried I'm going to damage an eardrum just with them, like, 
fighting me on getting a look in their ear. So something as that needs to be as precise as inserting a tube into the eardrum. Um, you would think you don't want that squirmy nature. I Maybe you need a little bit of like a sedative or something like that that isn't quite general anesthesia, but may work to calm the child down in that situation. But that's something to look forward to and look out for. Until then, I will keep sending my patients your way. That sounds great. <laughs> so, of course, we need to end on a little bit of a joke, right? Yes, let's hear it. So why did the corn go to the doctor? Why? Because it had an ear infection. <laughs> uh, an ear of corn. Well, I, right? Yeah, I get it, but it's just not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up this episode of Kids Considered. You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu. Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered. And Instagram at Kids Considered. If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you. Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388. Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us for our next podcast. Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital. Children's Hospital.